91. The investment manager seeking opportunities in change. The world is constantly shaped by change and change brings opportunities, but opportunities are not always obvious. 91 was born in times of change and has seen past its distractions to seek real investment opportunities to help clients reach long-term investment goals. 91. Investing for a world of change. Find out more at 91.com. Capital at Risk. 91 is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Hello. So we're racing through this third series and we're already up to the third episode. I'm your host, Chris Slowly, and this is Future Thinking. For those who've had your fill of food, you're in luck. Today, we're looking at innovation, disruption and how small ideas can unseat big players. Our guest today is Rainer Lesser-Hanaway, the co-manager of the US group Polar Capital's Small Cap Growth Funds. Rainer, who's based in Boston, as my first mistake reveals, has a close eye on what trends are bubbling under the surface in US equities. And crucially, how to capitalise before the wider investment world gets there first. In this week's episode, we talk about digital transformation and the journey small cap companies have made in putting limited resources to work against larger competitors. We also hear how the pandemic has sharpened the elbows of many companies fighting to get heard. Enjoy. Well, I'm joined today by Rainer Lesser-Hanaway of Poland Capital. Rainer, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, it's always good to keep these things international. So you're in Florida at the moment, is that right? I'm actually in Boston. We at Poland Capital have uh, an office in Boston that houses our small company investment team. Well, it doesn't bode well for my research that I got the first thing wrong. So let's see how we go from here. But you're joining us today because it is future thinking and we are looking at future trends. And I've always been a believer of the idea that smaller companies can be a main driver in these changes and trends. They're the ones that will potentially grow up and disrupt and either unseat the larger players. And speaking to yourself, he runs small cap portfolios. You seem like the right person to speak to on that front. So without asking the biggest question possible to begin with, what are the trends within small caps that you think have the greatest future potential? Is it digitalization, disruption, technology, or is it more nuanced than that? I think it is digital transformation, but it's less about digital transformation specifically and more about what that enables for smaller companies. That's something I'm particularly excited about having looked at small companies now for 25 years. What I'm seeing is that the internet is really knocking down a lot of barriers for small companies that previously existed. And that's really what gets us excited. Uh, the first area that I would point to that I think is perhaps most important is that by leveraging the internet and also adopting remote work strategies, smaller companies now have the ability to really reach a much larger talent pool than they could historically. Historically, they were really um, dependent on the locations where they were, and now uh, it's not location-based, and small companies have really figured out how to broaden their talent pool. And so that is one area where the barriers are um, really being knocked down, and it, you could say that the internet is really democratizing the playing field for small companies on that front. Another area that I think stands out is the ability for a small company to build a brand. When I started my career, and you know, as I think about what it took 20 years ago 
for a small company to build a brand, a brand, it was really not feasible from a cost perspective for small companies to be able to do this. And so many really struggled to really get their brand out there and to compete with the likes of larger companies. Today, leveraging the internet, small companies, again, are on a much more even playing field. And if they really are able to kind of harness talent around things like social media and also around making a solid connection with their customers so that their customers can re represent them on social media, that can really go a long way and create an opportunity for small brands to get as much of a following as brands that have been around for 100 years. That's really interesting. So there's much more, there are many more levers to pull then. It seems like there's, there's much more rather than just going into the market, hoping that your product's better than the bigger player. You can, like you say, build that following and, and build up momentum to an extent. Yes. And, you know, you touch on something there that I think is worth really double clicking on here, which is that we're not in an environment anymore where companies need to try something and hope that it works they can also leverage the internet and feedback loops that they put in place with customers and prospective customers to really get a lot of input along the way, which really reduces the amount of risk that a company takes on when they're launching a new product or a new strategy. One thing I read in one of your white papers was the idea that digital transformation is not just about technology. Because when we talk about disruption, technology seems to be where people stop and that's where people tend to focus. Is that, where does that lead us to then? What, where else could digital transformation take place? Am I being overly simplistic to think digital and tech are effectively the same thing? You know, a digital transformation is really taking place everywhere. And the way I like to think about it is that the shift of digital really began many years ago, but it wasn't as pervasive across sectors and industries, uh, nor as all encompassing as it is today. But today, especially as consumers and businesses have shifted their behaviors to digital more urgently and more meaningfully, it really raises the bar for companies across every sector and industry to really behave in a way that um, meets the needs of their customers. And so, you know, for example, in consumer, you know, we've seen a lot of companies really drive great outcomes by adopting more digital practices. And I'm not talking just around e-commerce, I and mean, that's the most obvious one. But if we think back to the pandemic, for example, and the companies that had been successful around um, fast food, digital ordering and delivery, you know, there is an example where you would never think that, you know, getting um, technical expertise and knowing how to kind of um, you know, handle kind of digital orders and delivery would be um, a talent that a fast food company really needs to have. But that is what separated the ones that did really well in the pandemic from the ones that struggled. And so there is an example where, you know, a company that's not traditionally a tech company really needs to adopt technology and experience um, or achieve technology leadership in order to meet their customers where they are. Well, that, I mean, that feeds perfectly into because the example that you gave in the, the white paper that really stood out for me was Wingstop. So the, the chicken company, the fried chicken company, and it seems that the, you mentioned the digital first mindset was really giving them an edge in the uh, quick service restaurant sector. 
are there other sort of unexpected areas of innovation? Because personally, I wouldn't have put fried chicken at the top of that list. Yeah, I, I think that there are many areas and I think it all comes down to companies that uh, they really adopt a digital transformation mindset and a set of goals in every piece of their organization. You know, there's there are many processes that previously were suboptimal that with the wise use of technology, companies can get a lot better at what they do. And it really involves, you know, looking into every piece of an organization and figuring out how you can drive efficiencies, how you can drive a better customer relationship, how you can adapt to the changing needs of your employees in order to drive better outcomes overall for your business. And so I don't think this is something that is in any way sector or industry dependent. It's really more about a company taking a step back and, and really throwing away any hidden assumptions they may have had about what it takes to build a great business historically and rewriting the rules. One thing that seems to chime with that and what really is important for a great business and then using some quotes that are on your, your team page on Polo Capital is profit matters. And the idea that they've got to be profitable. And I, I mean, we, a lot of the companies we see in this disruption space, and this is more large cap, for example, Tesla, hugely popular, not hugely profitable. Are there sometimes conflations between hype and exciting areas and disruptive ideas that will actually work? So one of the things that I um, luckily had the opportunity to learn early on in my career through the dot-com boom and bust was that it's really, it's not enough for a company to have a straight, like a great strategic vision. They really need to have the operational know-how to deliver on that vision. And they need to have financial flexibility. And by that, what I mean is that a company should be in a position where they're not too reliant on external capital in order to achieve their goals. And so that's why we prioritize cash flow profitability for the companies that we invest in. We want for them to be able to behave in a very long-term way, no matter what's going on around them. I've seen at times in my career, even really great companies that are growing very quickly struggle because the capital window closes and they can no longer fund their growth plans. And it causes them to behave in a very short-term way in reaction to that issue where they may end up you know, letting go of their people. They may end up not investing in, in certain um, areas to enhance their product or their service. Um, they can't invest enough in customer service, so they lose the customer connection. It's pretty risky for companies if they can't generate capital themselves in order to do all those things. Well, I imagine having started when you started having done this for 25 years, gone through the dot-com boom, also the global financial crisis, you've really seen companies that have been tested, the, uh, the ultimate stress tests, whether those companies are long-term viable, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things or the many things that stand out to me as being super important across all those cases is about having an effective management team that is driven by purpose, that has a real North Star um, that they test all their decisions against, that behaves in a very long-term way, that has a clear recipe for how they're building the business, 
And that is good at capital allocation and really always thinking about investing in the future to make their businesses better. I was really hoping to get through this whole podcast without talking about the pandemic. I think it's really hard to do that in any environment at the moment. But what we saw over the last 18 months, even longer perhaps, is the smaller companies were perhaps the hardest hit. They weren't the ones with the deepest pockets to be able to to support themselves in the way that a larger competitor might be able to. In what way has that made them leaner and more exciting to an extent, though? And, And has there been any areas that have performed particularly well and are likely to perform strongly in the future? So I would say for our small companies, one of the things that we've been really excited to see is that most of the companies are emerging from the pandemic in a better place and stronger than they were going into the pandemic. And a lot of that has to do with their ability to stay very long-term focused throughout these times and really focus on doing what's best for the business in terms of how they handled the pandemic as it relates to their human capital. Uh, Those that were able to stay very strategic and still focus on making long-term decisions in their business and stay very long-term focused, those were able, uh, that that was able to, to, companies that did that well were able um, to really make great strides Um, Companies that um, were okay with experimenting uh, and looking into new ways to meet customer needs. Um, Customer needs changed quite a bit during the pandemic. And so those companies that were able to be adaptable and flexible and meet customers where they were and really um, listen to what the customers needed and help them solve those problems, um, those companies did very well. We have a lot of examples among small companies that really stand out to us and speak to this idea of being long-term focused and being financially flexible. And I do think that um, small companies in some ways have an advantage at times like these because it's easier with fewer people and fewer lines of business to move more quickly and pivot into new areas. And we saw many companies do that very well. Well, you talked there about changing needs over the short term and your colleague, Tucker Walsh, spoke to my colleague, Siri Christensen, about changing needs demographically over the longer term. And it seems like there are gonna be a change in in interest, a change in spending power when millennials becoming more, more uh, higher earners and able to put their money to work. Do you think that will be a favorable trend for smaller companies? Do you think because from what I understand, millennials will be more discerning buyers, especially along ethical lines, could that play into the hands of the smaller companies? I do think it could, but I do. I think this is not really a small company versus a large company issue. I think this is really more about identifying companies that are on the right side of change, no matter what size they are. As we look at some of the shifts in in generational power dynamics and influence, what we see is that there are some real changes that are taking place that can give us a lot of clues as investors about which companies will be successful and which companies will struggle. And it all comes down to, I think, first, uh, being exposed to the the right demographics. You know, when you look at some of the demographic charts today, you know, what we see is that 
the millennial and um, Gen Z population, they've now hit this tipping point where they're larger than the baby boomer uh, and Gen Xers. And so just in sheer number, that stands out to us. But then when you think about where they are in terms of um, millennials specifically, where they are in their careers, where they're reaching um, you know, significant earnings power, uh, that generation is also uh, inheriting a lot of money. Um, they're growing in wealth and that has a lot of impact on spending. And so companies that are on the right side of that, that are really delivering on what millennials and what Gen Z wants today, we think are gonna do a lot better. There's a few things that I would um, point to that I think really um, are defining characteristics for how this new consumer behaves that we should all be looking at. The first is which they love brands. They prioritize brands, especially ones with strong purpose that reflect their personal values over price. And when I think about my generation or my parents' generation, definitely price was the priority. So that's something that's, that's very different behavior than we saw in older generations. The next thing is they really care about environmental sustainability and about social impact. And they want to get behind companies that are really doing right by doing good. And so that is another area where companies can really connect with these younger generations. They also are avid users of technology. And that doesn't uh, come as a surprise to anyone. But you know, simply when you see the influence that something like social media has on their purchasing decisions, that looks very different than it does for older generations. Older generations do also spend a lot of time streaming videos, for example, or spending time on Facebook or Instagram, but they don't have, um, those mediums don't have the same impact on their buying behavior in terms of influence. So that's also something that's a little bit different. So I've talked about disruption. I've asked you about the pandemic. I've asked you about millennials. For anybody who listens to this show before, if you've got your bingo card, I've ticked all the boxes that I normally do. So what I'm going to do is, Raina, to finish, is there an area of the small cap story that is overlooked or not discussed in my perhaps broad questions? Is there something within that that you think people should be more aware of that is going to be either structurally or in some way important for the future of the way that your area of expertise develops? Too. One of the things that I think is really misunderstood is uh, as we're looking at companies and valuing companies today, people have a hard time understanding that many of these digital assets behave very differently than the traditional assets that many of us uh, learned how to value when we were in school. And by that, what I mean is these smaller companies that are leveraging technology wisely, they have the opportunity to grow faster than they ever could before. They can reach a wider audience than they ever could before. They need less capital to scale their businesses. Those that are really using in building them their businesses around intangible assets like software or internet. Uh, they're able to drive better profitability and better returns on capital than they could before. 
And then you, over when you put all of these things together, it really points to uh, an asset that behaves differently than what we're used to with traditional assets. And I think it's important for us as investors and those that are looking at companies and trying to understand how companies behave from a financial standpoint to really grasp that concept. And I, and I don't think it's well understood today. It's a great note to finish on. Raina, thank you very much for joining me today. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. Ninety-one, the investment manager seeking opportunities in change. The world is constantly shaped by change and change brings opportunities, but opportunities are not always obvious. 91 was born in times of change and has seen past its distractions to seek real investment opportunities to help clients reach long-term investment goals. 91, investing for a world of change. Find out more at 91.com. Capital at risk. 91 is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.